Okay, let's uh, resume now. And uh, we come to uh, view the darker side of King David. And um, uh, that's certainly reflected in uh, his incident with Bathsheba, the affair with Bathsheba that you're probably fairly well familiar with. He um, had multiple wives. We've already seen that, Nicole and uh, um, um, Abigail and um, other concubines as well. Uh, but that didn't satisfy him. Uh, one day while uh, the other forces were out uh, waging a campaign, uh, apparently David now felt that um, uh, he could just stay behind and take it easy in the temp uh, in the palace and uh, uh, so he's one evening looking out over his city from the palace which overlooked and uh, he sees a woman who is bathing on the roof I mean that was not necessarily all that uncommon uh, people down below wouldn't be able to see it was probably one of the most private places um, but for the palace, which is above everywhere else, uh, David could see. And uh, he lusted after her, and uh, the lust in his mind and heart then he acted on and uh, summoned her as um, a subject. She really didn't have much choice. Okay, I mean, here's the king summoning you to come. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, Okay, uh, not, not even of Israelite origin, but faithful to um, the Lord and uh, a Hittite who had been joined into the covenant community and was fighting for um, God's people out in the campaign is away. And uh, so David lies with Bathsheba and uh, commits adultery with her. Well, uh, not long after that, uh, she comes to, uh, sends him the message, I'm pregnant. Okay. And uh, Uriah's been away for some time. Okay. Uh, so uh, the first sin of lust um, to the second sin of adultery, and now will lead to a sin of cover up and ultimately murder, okay? And uh, you know how David, first of all, tried to uh, lure Uriah back and get him to um, um, have marital relations with his wife so that uh, it would appear that she conceived from him. But uh, he refused to do that because his brothers were out on the field fighting. Why should he then be... Um, uh, enjoying these marital pleasures and so uh, he, he keeps his distance from her so that plan doesn't work um, next um, uh, David then undertakes to have Uriah um, killed and he tells his general here Joab uh, send Uriah out you know in the front lines and then retreat and just leave him there to uh, be wiped out by the enemy and that's what happens and uh, then uh, David later 
um, brings Bathsheba into the palace and marries her. Um, no doubt he was expecting that it would appear like he's being a very gracious and generous man to this woman, uh, the widow of a war hero. Um, but uh, whether or not people bought it or could see what was happening, we don't know. But one person who saw what had happened uh, through the revelation of the Lord was Nathan, that prophet, you know, the one who had come to speak the Lord regularly to David. And uh, he comes to David and tells this little parable and uh, uh, eventually reveals to David, you are the man who has committed these great uh, crimes of stealing another man's wife and uh, bringing about his death. David then repents, says, I have sinned. And Nathan announces absolution, God's forgiveness. Uh, the Lord has removed your sin. And yet, there will still be consequences uh, for this sin. And uh, Nathan prophesies in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. And out of your own household, God says, I'll bring calamity on you. So the sword will never depart. Now your household will experience trouble and turmoil. Stormy days will follow. And uh, that is indeed the case. In the little parable, which I think you're familiar with, that I don't need to narrate, that Nathan spoke a um, little parable about how uh, one rich man took another man's beloved lamb, uh, representing how David stole Uriah's wife. Uh, once David had heard that, he said that uh, the man who stole the lamb should pay back fourfold four sheep for having stole the, the, the lamb. And um, what you have that follows here are actually four of David's lambs, if you will, his sons, who are killed. The first one, really, is the, the son, the child who is con was conceived um, in adultery. Uh, born of Bathsheba, uh, he dies uh, shortly after birth. Okay? Okay? But then there are three here who are killed by the sword, just as Nathan had predicted. And, and again, it's a sordid tale uh, of uh, ugliness in a family. And uh, this is all resulting from David's sin and his negligence in terms of leading his children to follow the Lord. Uh, the first son who is killed is Amnon, A-M-N-O-N. And uh, Amnon actually rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Um, Again, from another, uh, David had multiple wives and concubines, and so this was a half-sister, uh, different mothers, but same father, David. Uh, the 
full brother of Tamar then uses this rape as an excuse then to murder Amnon. Okay. And that son, the half-brother of Amnon that kills him, is Absalom. Okay. Absalom. And uh, Absalom then also eventually seeks to rebel against David as Nathan had predicted right after confronting David about the sin with Bathsheba. Um, in fact, Absalom almost succeeds in um, usurping his father with a coup so much that David has to flee from Jerusalem and Absalom takes control of Jerusalem David leaves behind his harem, and Absalom, in public view, then um, um, uses David's wives sexually, assumes um, them as his harem. And so, what you had had David do in private, take another man's wife, now it's turned against him in public, his own son takes uh, David's own wives, his own harem. Um, eventually, though, this rebellion, Absalom's rebellion, is uh, uh, rebuked, and uh, uh, Absalom himself has to flee. And uh, in his flight, his long, full, flowing hair gets caught in the branches of a tree and uh, he's just kind of dangling there the hair is entangled he can't you know get it disentangled and uh, his pursuer is none other than Joab <coughs> the general <coughs> David had said when Absalom was in flight he'd said uh, you know go and capture him but nobody kill him uh, take him alive nobody kill him Joab disobeyed David's orders there, and as Absalom is hanging there, Joab uses his dangling body kind of as target practice with javelins. So Absalom now is dead. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> then the third one who dies at the sword will be uh, David's son Adonijah. And this will happen after David himself dies, and in the contest for the throne between this son, Adonijah, and the other son, Solomon. Okay, so in that conflict, Adonijah will be killed. Okay, so there are these three sons, and then Solomon. The first baby is unnamed. Uh, but then these three are all uh, executed, murdered, killed, whatever. And uh, so this turmoil, this trouble, this storm continues. David grieves um, the death of Absalom, especially, and uh, is, uh, they are, it's difficult for them to console him, uh, but eventually 
one has to move on, so he does. So I have a quick question. Um, um, David has been upset and angry with Joab for several things that he's done, but he doesn't, up to this point, as far as I can tell, he hasn't like really punished him. I mean, I would imagine, it just seems like he would do something. You mean God would, you mean? Killed, or David himself. Um, you know, Joab kills um, Abner and the other son of Saul, and um, here he kills Absalom, even though he wasn't supposed to, and um, it repeatedly says that David's not happy with him, but he doesn't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. It just seems strange to me. Mm -hmm. Does he eventually kill Joab? <laughs> well, uh, Joab had been with David from the very beginning, uh, part of that um, outlaw band, okay? And uh, Joab um, has been loyal, but not always obedient. And so I think that David prizes the loyalty of Joab. Okay. Um, but particularly after this Absalom thing, the relations between David and Joab um, sour. And um, I'm sorry, I don't remember precisely, maybe one of you do, but I do think that eventually David has a belly full of Joab and, and uh, has him taken care of. Um, that seems to be in my, my memory here. So, okay, any other questions? So then this summarizes uh, David's uh, life then here. Uh, the expansion of the kingdom, many positives, the unification of the kingdom, the establishment of the capital, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant at that capital, uh, the covenant for the dynasty, but then also what follows the Bathsheba incident with the turmoil in his own household and the question of succession as the king. In the end, then, you're left with Solomon, uh, although Adonijah is still alive once uh, David dies. But even before David dies, through the influence of, of uh, Bathsheba, his wife, who is not the mother of Adonijah, um, uh, and also the influence of Nathan, Solomon is designated as the successor to David. Okay. So David himself designates uh, Solomon as the successor. Okay, let's move on then to Solomon. Why did uh, Solomon keep the name Solomon even after Nathan came and said that his name was to be uh, Um I, he, he then assumed both names, okay? So, and this is not uncommon that you, you find oftentimes in the Bible especially the Old Testament, that there are multiple names, uh, that uh, sometimes two names. Um, for example, um, uh, in uh, Moses' father-in-law is Jethro, but he's also referred to as Reuben. Okay? And then there are some times when a name is given by a prophet, to, uh, a new name is given to someone, and, and you'll see it kind of alternating between both names. 
you look at Jacob. I mean, Jacob was given the name uh, Israel, but then also sometimes he's referred to as Jacob, still uh, thereafter as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's, it's kind of a parallel name then, another name to be used. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, let's move on with Solomon then. Ah, here we are. Um, Solomon now begins, uh, the story of Solomon really begins in 1 Kings. So we're making a transition. 1 Samuel had focused primarily on Saul, okay, Samuel and Saul. 2 Samuel on David. Now 1 Kings will make the transition from David to Solomon. His reign is 960 to 920 BC. So just as David's reign was 40 years, from 1000 to 960 BC, so Solomon's reign will be 40 years, 960 to 920 BC. And uh, uh, this is something that you need to recognize, that he is the son of David through Bathsheba, the woman that uh, David had adultery with and, and then later married. Um, um, he is not obviously the son who was conceived from that adulterous affair, that son died. He's a later son, born later, but through Bathsheba. And it's during the time of Solomon that you continue this golden period of Israelite uh, rule. And it's a united kingdom here, uh, both the south and the north. You notice that uh, there are no tribal distinctions uh, because Solomon uh, further consolidates Israel even beyond what David did into more of a unified state than a, a confederacy of states, more of a federal organization. Solomon had been anointed as king even while David was alive. David with his lyre in this uh, classical artwork uh, oftentimes you know who David is. He's always got his lyre next to him. And so David is approving of the appointment of Solomon as the king who will succeed him. Okay? And uh, so Solomon then assumes rule from the capital in Jerusalem. Uh, but Gibeon is important because shortly after Solomon begins his reign, uh, he goes to Gibeon and is, uh, in, during his sleep, is uh, co communicated to by the Lord. And the Lord um, asks him, I want to bless you as I blessed your father David. Ask anything of me. It's kind of like a genie coming out of the brass lamp saying, you know, your wish is my command. Okay. Ask anything of me, and I will grant it. 
And uh, Solomon ponders this, and he uh, could have gone for wealth. He could have gone for uh, might. He could have gone for glory. Uh, but he goes for wisdom. And God says, you have chosen well. Good choice. And uh, so because you have chosen wisdom, I'm also going to give you those other benefits as well. Wealth and stability and uh, 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 secure reign and, and glory as well. And so Solomon is noted for his wisdom. Last night, uh, my wife and I, my father, went to see Fiddler on the Roof. Okay? And Davey said, you were there, some of the others of you. Don't miss it if you have the opportunity, especially with this beautiful weather that we're having here. Uh, Sunday's the last night, and there are the free seats in the back, but it's a wonderful performance. Uh, amen, people? Yeah, yeah, it's really great. But, of course, it's set in a Jewish context in Russia, and uh, um, Tevye is frequently referencing Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, he becomes almost proverbial for uh, uh, the epitome of the wise man. And perhaps one of the most um, memorable instances that demonstrate his wisdom is the time when two women uh, come before him for a decision. Uh, they both claim that this baby is theirs. Uh, one baby had been uh, accidentally killed, and now they're both claiming this baby is, is theirs. And Solomon says, okay, well, uh, I'll settle this with equity. Uh, bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half and give uh, half to each of you. And immediately the real mother says, no, let the other take the baby. And he's able to you know, say, I know who the real mother is here and give the baby to the real mother. Uh, so that becomes... Uh, he becomes famous for his wisdom. That's why we'll uh, next move into the wisdom literature uh, because it's associated with Solomon. And in fact, he is credited and um, without doubt wrote a lot of uh, the wisdom literature in the Bible. Um, his renown for wisdom spreads so far that the queen of Sheba comes to test him to really see for herself uh, how wise he is. And uh, Sheba probably is in Arabia, so much farther south, uh, the Arab Arabian Peninsula, probably far down on the uh, kind of um, coast of the Red Sea down there. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, that's probably where she came from. But uh, the Ethiopians claim that Sheba was Ethiopia and uh, that she had uh, come from, from there. And there's a tradition um, um, in Ethiopia about the Queen of Sheba coming. She brings uh, as presents to Solomon about four and a half tons of gold and many other riches, as you can see, kind of demonstrated here. And uh, so that's her present to him. And again, if you go with the Ethiopian tradition, he gives her a present as well of uh, impregnating her, okay? So that she goes back to Ethiopia and uh, bears a son, and the Ethiopians will claim that their monarchy derives all the way back to Solomon, okay?
But that's not in the Bible. That's just a little bit of added trivia for you here. Um, Solomon now is noteworthy for uh, a number of things here. Uh, he develops a number of um, horse cities. The most famous is Megiddo, uh, t towards the north here. And uh, so he becomes um, premier in terms of the trade of horses, which is an important, important, I mean, this is like the arms trade of the ancient world. Uh, he, he monopolizes the trade of horses. The horses primarily had been raised in the north in the, uh, what is now kind of Turkey, and the Egyptians were always eager to get those, but the Egyptians were the ones who produced the chariots, and so you've got the trade going back and forth through this region. And uh, particularly in Megiddo, uh, this has been uh, excavated, these chariot cities. Um, um, and uh, trying to look here at my notes. Oh, yeah. Uh, in Megiddo, uh, there were uh, 4,000 stalls for horses in the excavations that were done by the University of Chicago, which uh, I even saw some of the many of the artifacts from Megiddo when I was a student there taking courses. And um, um, uh, he had uh, 1,400 chariots in his military. Chapter 10 says 12,000 horses. And so he dominates militarily. And at this time, Israel is the military superpower of the ancient Near East. Uh, it is the superpower. This is the glory days. So you've got that military might, a strong defense system. Okay. Uh, he also develops trade. And this uh, promotes the wealth of his kingdom as well. Um, that this area is always critical for trade because the major trade routes pass through here. You've got desert over here, so between Egypt and Mesopotamia, trade is always going to be passing through. He capitalizes on that, but he also then develops a port here down, uh, down here at the Gulf of the Red Sea, Ezion Geber, and develops a fleet. This is the first time that uh, Israel has a fleet um, and so you've got the Phoenicians here who have a fleet in the Mediterranean. Uh, there's no Suez Canal for ships to get through. And so this becomes then the, the area where uh, trade can pass from the Mediterranean uh, into the Red Sea and then east to uh, um, you know, Arabia and India and so forth. So you've got this connecting place. Um, for trade and commerce uh, with the Phoenicians. And there is a significant uh, alliance always with the Phoenicians, not only with David, but with Solomon, uh, with Hiram, the king of the Phoenicians. Okay? Uh, David, or Solomon, embarks on a major building program. Uh, again, these major fortresses of Hatzor, Megiddo, uh, Gezer or Gezer um, are some of the most significant. Uh, this is a pathway 
major route from the sea to Jerusalem, so to protect the route to Jerusalem, and especially since there still are Philistines here, even though they've been pretty much neutralized, uh, that's important. And uh, most memorable of all is his building of the Temple of Jerusalem. Remember in 2 Samuel, um, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel uh, 7, uh, God had told David, you don't build me a house, I'll build you a house, a dynasty. But then God went on to say, but your son will build me the house, your son will build me the temple. And so uh, David himself begins assembling the materials, getting everything ready for the temple to be built by Solomon, his successor, his son. So uh, the temple is uh, to be to be built then by Solomon. And it takes about seven years for the temple to be built. Solomon also expands the royal palace. It takes actually 13 years for that to be built. And uh, these are just marvelous. I mean, this is the jewel of the Middle East now, Jerusalem is. Uh, everything paneled in Lebanese cedar, uh, crafted by the Phoenician craftsmen, precious metals, gold, and, and so forth. Uh, the temple itself, here's the building and then the, the dedication of the temple. Solomon officiated at that dedication of the temple. Um, and the building itself is not necessarily all that large when you're speaking of the temple. Uh, the dimensions are actually doubled from what they had been with the tabernacle, the tent. So all of the dimensions, the tabernacle for for example, the Holy of Holies was 10 cubits um, in length, breadth, height. Um, and uh, so now it's 20. And uh, the holy place had been 20 cubits, now it's 40. A cubit is approximately 18 inches. This is the measurement of a cubit from elbow to tip of the hand, because that makes for a kind of handy little um, measuring unit, you know, you can just hold up, okay, this is about two cubits, okay. So uh, in terms of cubits, what you've got here, the Holy of Holies would be about 30 feet in length, breadth, and height. Uh, the holy place here would be about 60 feet. So all said and done, this was about 100 uh, feet. So not all that large in size but it was made up in terms of the, the beauty of it and the splendor and the gold. I mean, everything inside, not only those, um, uh, the furnishings like the lampstand and the, the altar of incense and, and so forth um, is gold, but uh, uh, much of the paneling is overlaid with gold. In fact, it's all overlaid in gold. And uh, there, there would actually be a curtain here. This wasn't a wall. That's probably more of a support piece here. A curtain then that was heavy fabric embroidered. Uh, so wonderful um, fabric. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, was placed in here as the throne. And uh, Solomon also had two cherubim statues that would flank the Ark of the, the Covenant that were placed here. So you actually have four cherubim images in the Holy of Holies. And so this corresponds then when you get to the book of Revelation 
to the four living creatures. Remember, the cherubim are like um, uh, kind of sphinx-like creatures. And so uh, the, what we see in the book of Revelation is the throne room of God. And immediately around the throne are the four living creatures. Uh, those are the, the cherubim, if you will, that are depicted here in the Temple of Solomon as four cherubim. Two on the mercy seat and then two that flank the ark itself. Okay. So uh, there you have the temple. This is also a great time of prosperity for Israel. Uh, Israel is not only the superpower militarily, but also economically because of trade. And so it's remembered as a great time of prosperity for the people of Israel. But Solomon, like his father David, had significant failure, even more significant failure than um, David had. But let's, before we move on, uh, any, anything about the successes of Solomon? I had just one quick question. When you mentioned, uh, what's his name? The fourth son, the A1. Adonijah. Yeah, Adonijah. Um, in this story here, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and asks her to ask Solomon for some woman, and Solomon gets really offended by that. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, Is that something Solomon wanted? I mean, you have to understand that there there's real tension here because of the question of who's going to succeed. And so any little gesture can be taken either as uh, some effort to gain the throne or taken as some excuse <laughs> to say, this guy is seeking after my throne. And in terms of, of this woman, um, I believe that she had been uh, one of the concubines of David. Okay. And so to uh, assume uh, the wife or concubine, uh, the harem, just like Absalom did, uh, is in a sense saying, now I am going to be the rightful successor to this the former king when I assume his harem. And uh, in this case, it was just one woman, wasn't the whole harem, but Solomon uh, either legitimately took that as a, a threat, uh, as uh, Adonijah's trying to uh, uh, claim the throne, or uses this as an excuse to get rid of Adonijah then. Okay, good question. <laughs> 